There is a long, comprehensive opinion article in the Washington Post. It's titled, A Trump Dictatorship is Increasingly Inevitable. We Should Stop Pretending. It's written by Robert Kagan. Here's a little background. Robert Kagan is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and an editor-at-large for the Washington Post. His latest book is The Ghost at the Feast, America and the Collapse of World Order, 1900 to 1941. And he is also the author of an upcoming book called Rebellion, How Anti-Liberalism is Tearing America Apart Again. It's going to be published in May, and I'm really looking forward to reading it. Hi, I'm Gloria Moraga. This is the Political Woman Podcast. Thanks for being here. Please subscribe. Please follow me on TikTok and YouTube. So the story, the op-ed piece, the opinion piece by Robert Kagan is 6,200 words long. I read every word, not not once, not twice, maybe three times or so. Yeah, I am a psycho. For this podcast, I've cut it down to about 4,000 words because I do want to share it with you in some form. And I've done this before. Everything is attributed. I will quote him as I make my own comments on my podcast. And I will link to the story, to the full story on GloriaMoraga.com. And I'm going to post it soon. I read it yesterday. I put the podcast together late last night and I had audio problems. I didn't like the way my audio was sounding and I was having trouble with um, my software. So I started editing again this morning and it's just like, forget it. I'm just going to recut audio. So I'm late posting. I wanted to post this Sunday, but it's now Monday. And please forgive me for that. <laughs> All right, here we go. This is from a Trump dictatorship. Is increasingly inevitable? We should stop pretending. Published in the Washington Post and written by Robert Kagan. Quote, let's stop the wishful thinking and face the stark reality. There is a clear path to dictatorship in the United States, and it is getting shorter every day. In 13 weeks, Donald Trump will have locked up the Republican nomination. End quote. Now, I'm ending there because the next paragraph is information from a poll, the Real Clear Politics poll. I'm not going to read it. Bottom line, polls show that Trump's going to be the Republican nominee. I'm not reading it because I, I'm trying this year, at least, not to quote polls. Because I worked in media for 20 years, 20 years plus, in every job known to mankind in television news and in television. Behind the scenes, political reporter, general assignment reporter, went into management, Late in my career, was a managing editor, was in charge of, of our website. And 
I've been there. I've conducted, I've been the woman behind the scenes working with the pollsters. And it's easy. It's really easy to skew polls. It just, it just is. And I won't go into it all, but let's get back to the article. So I'm going to skip the poll, but if you want to um, read it, I, I will have the link on my website. Quote, the fact that many Americans might prefer other candidates, much ballyhooed by such political sages as Karl Rove, will soon become irrelevant when millions of Republican voters turn out to choose the person whom no one allegedly wants. For many months now, we've been living in a world of self-delusion, rich with imagined possibilities. Maybe it will be Ron DeSantis, or maybe Nikki Haley. Maybe the myriad indictments of Trump will doom him with Republican suburbanites. Such hopeful speculation has allowed us to drift along passively, conducting business as usual, taking no dramatic action to change course, in the hope and expectation that something will happen. <laughs> like people on a riverboat, we have long known there's a waterfall ahead, but assume we will somehow find our way to shore before we go over the edge. But now, the actions required to get us to shore are looking harder and harder, if not downright impossible. The magical thinking phase is ending. Barring some miracle, Trump will soon be the presumptive Republican nominee for president. When that happens, there will be a swift and dramatic shift in the political power dynamic in his favor. Until now, Republicans and conservatives have enjoyed relative freedom to express anti-Trump sentiments, to speak openly and positively about alternative candidates, to vent criticisms of Trump's behavior past and present. Donors who find Trump distasteful have been free to spread their money around to help his competitors. Establishment Republicans have made no secret of their hope that Trump will be convicted and thus removed from the equation without their having to take a stand against him. All this will end once Trump wins Super Tuesday. Votes are the currency of power in our system, and money flows. And by those measures, Trump is about to become far more powerful than he already is. The hour of casting about for alternatives is closing. The next phase is about people falling in line. In fact, it has already begun. As his nomination becomes inevitable, donors are starting to jump from other candidates to Trump. The recent decision by the Koch political network to endorse GOP hopeful Nikki Haley is scarcely sufficient to change this trajectory. And why not? If Trump is going to be the nominee, it makes sense to sign up early while he is still grateful for defectors. Even anti-Trump donors must ask themselves whether their cause is best served by shunning the man who stands a reasonable chance of being the next president. 
Will corporate executives endanger the interests of their shareholders just because they or their spouses hate Trump? It's not surprising that people with hard cash on the line are the first to flip. The rest of the Republican Party will quickly follow. Rove's recent exhortation that primary voters choose anyone but Trump is the last such plea you are likely to hear from anyone with a future in the Republican Party. Even in a normal campaign, intra-party dissent begins to disappear once the primaries produce a clear winner. Most of the leading candidates have already pledged to support Trump if he is the nominee, even before he won a single primary vote. Imagine their posture after he runs the table on Super Tuesday. Most of the candidates running against him are going to sprint toward him, competing for his favor. After Super Tuesday, there will be no surer and shorter path to the presidency for a Republican than to become the loyal running mate of a man who will be 82 in 2028. End quote. I'm just going to stop there because I just have to say, yeah, that's what Mike Pence thought, too. (laughs) You know, I mean, don't uh, put eggs in the Trump basket because he turns quickly on people. Okay, back to the article. Quote, Republicans who have tried to navigate the Trump era by mixing appeals to non-Trump voters with repeated protestations of loyalty to Trump will end that show. As perilous as it is for Republicans to say a negative word about Trump today, it will be impossible once he has sewn up the nomination. The party will be in full general election mode, subordinating all to the presidential campaign. What Republican or conservative will be standing up to Trump then? Will the Wall Street Journal editorial page, which has been rather boldly opposing Trump, continue to do so once he is the nominee and is the binary choice between Trump and Biden. There will be no more infighting, only outfighting. In short, a tsunami of Trump supporters from all directions. A winner is a winner. And a winner who stands a reasonable chance of wielding all the power there is to wield in the world is going to attract support no matter who they are. That is the nature of power at any time in any society. But Trump will not only dominate his party, he will again become the central focus of everyone's attention. Now that's a quote, now I'm just going to add, and that's the way he wants it. That's the way he insists upon it. Back to the article, quote, Even today, the news media can scarcely resist following Trump's every word and action. Once he secures the nomination, he will loom over the country like a colossus, his every word and gesture chronicled endlessly. Even today, the mainstream news media, including The Post and NBC News, is joining forces with Trump's lawyers, to seek televised coverage of his federal criminal trial in D.C. Trump intends to use the trial to boost his candidacy and discredit the American justice system as corrupt. 
and the media outlets serving their own interests will help him do it. End quote. Now, okay, I see that differently. I see televising the trial for his part in January 6th and overthrowing, trying to overthrow the election. I see it as shining a light on him and his crimes. Because unlike the January 6th hearings, Trump is going to be the focus of this trial, obviously. And I, I think it's going to show him in a really horrible light. And I hope people see it and realize what a danger he is. So that's my take on it. So I, I differ from, from Kagan on this. That's what I think, but here's what, what Kagan thinks. So, quote, Trump will thus enter the general election campaign early next year with momentum backed by growing political and financial resources and an increasingly unified party. Can the same be said of Biden? Is Biden's power likely to grow over the coming months? Will his party unify around him? Or will alarm and doubt among Democrats, already high, continue to increase? Even at this point, the president is struggling with double-digit defections among black Americans and young voters. Jill Stein and Robert F. Kennedy Jr. have already launched, respectively, third-party and independent campaigns coming at Biden in the main from the populist left. And the decision by Senator Joe Manchin not to run for re-election in West Virginia, but instead contemplate a third-party run for the presidency is potentially devastating. The Democratic coalition is likely to remain fractious as the Republicans unify and Trump consolidates his hold. End quote. This is assuming that all the Republicans don't care about democracy. <laughs> well, all right, never mind. I'm sorry I said that. <laughs> I, I guess, oh, I just want to think that I loved Republicans. I loved covering Republicans when I was a political reporter. There's something about Republicans <laughs> that I loved and, and still do. I mean, you know, the ones that aren't really, really right wing. Back to the article. Biden, as some have pointed out, does not enjoy the usual advantage of incumbency. Trump is effectively also an incumbent after all. That means Biden is unable to make the usual incumbent claims that electing his opponent is a leap into the unknown. Few Republicans regard the Trump presidency as having been either abnormal or unsuccessful. In his first term, the respected adults around Trump not only blocked some of his most dangerous impulses, but also kept them hidden from the public. To this day, some of these same officials rarely speak publicly against him. Why should Republican voters have a problem with Trump if those who served him don't? Regardless of what Trump's enemies think, this is going to be a battle of two tested and legitimate presidents. Trump, meanwhile, enjoys the unusual advantage of non-incumbency, namely the lack of any responsibility. <laughs> it's always been that way for Trump. Biden must carry the world's problems like an albatross around his neck, like any incumbent. But most incumbents can at least claim that their opponent is too inexperienced to be entrusted with these crises. 
Biden cannot. But I disagree, and I think he can. Okay, quote. On Trump watch, there was no full-scale invasion of Ukraine, no major attack on Israel, no runaway inflation, no disastrous retreat from Afghanistan. It's hard to make the case for Trump's unfitness to anyone who already does not believe it. Trump enjoys some unusual advantages for a challenger, moreover. Even Ronald Reagan did not have Fox News and the Speaker of the House in his pocket. To the degree there are structural advantages in the coming general election, in short, they're on Trump's side. And that is because we even get to the problem that Biden can do nothing to solve his age, which is a joke, okay? It, it is. People much older than Biden have ruled countries. And if you stacked up Biden to Trump, Biden mentally, if they had to take a mental test, is much, much a thousand times sharper than Trump. Biden's issue is that he had a speech impediment and he's not the world's greatest public speaker. On the other hand, if you pitted Biden against Trump on the track field, <laughs> Biden would clean up. Biden is very physically fit. And Trump is not. Too many McDonald's burgers. All right, back to the article. Trump also enjoys another advantage, the national mood. Less than a year before the election is one of bipartisan disgust with the political system in general. Rarely in American history has democracy's inherent messiness been more striking. In Germany, Hitler and other agitators benefited from the squabbling in the Democratic parties, right and left, and the endless fights over the budget and log jams in the legislature, the fragile and fractious coalitions. German voters increasingly yearned for someone to cut through it all and get something, anything done. It didn't matter who was behind the political paralysis either, whether it came from the right or from the left. Today, Republicans might be responsible for Washington's dysfunction, and they might pay a price for it in down-ballot races. But Trump benefits from dysfunction because he is the one who offers a simple answer. Him. Oh, gosh. I mean, I, I don't know. I want to disagree, but I can't. In this election, only one candidate is running on the platform of using unprecedented power to get things done. To hell with the rules. And a growing number of Americans claim to want that in both parties. Trump is running against the system. Biden is the living embodiment of the system. Advantage, Trump. All right, the next section in this really long piece goes into Trump's current legal battles and how he's going to wriggle like a worm off the hooks. I'm going to skip these next couple of paragraphs because I don't really agree with the author. I still have faith in the judicial system, barely, but I have faith that there's going to be some justice for us. So I'm just going to leave it at that and skip a couple of paragraphs down. Quote, indicting Trump 
for trying to overthrow the government will prove akin to indicting Caesar for crossing the Rubicon and just as effective. Like Caesar, Trump wields a clout that transcends the laws and institutions of government based on the unswerving personal loyalty of his army of followers. So he's talking about, the author is, one-third of people who vote. He's putting a lot of power on them, and I don't think they have it. And I, I don't know if every Republican's going to follow the one-third MAGAs, but uh, I'll just go on. Quote, I mention all of this only to answer one simple question. Can Trump win the election? The answer, unless something radical and unforeseen happens, is of course he can. If that weren't so, the Democratic Party would not be in mounting panic about its prospects. I don't know. I don't think we're in mounting panic. I don't know. I don't think we're in mounting panic, but... If Trump does win the election, he will immediately become the most powerful person ever to hold that office. Not only will he wield the awesome powers of the American executive, powers that, as conservatives used to complain, have grown over the decades, but he will do so with the fewest constraints of any president, fewer even than his own first term. What limits those powers? The most obvious answer is the institutions of justice, all of which Trump, by his very election, will have defied and revealed as impotent. Okay, I disagree with that as well, but we have to wait and see. Quote, a court system that could not control Trump as a private individual is not going to control him better when he is president of the United States and appointing his own attorney general and all of the other top officials at the Justice Department. Think of the power of a man who gets himself elected president despite indictments, courtroom appearances, and perhaps even conviction. Would he even obey a directive from the Supreme Court? Or would he instead ask how many armored divisions the Chief Justice has? All right, so in the, all of this article, that's the scariest line to me. Not that I have much faith in the Supreme Court right now. That's scary. The next section is about Congress trying to control Trump. According to the author, Congress cannot control Trump. So I'm going to skip it for time. Having answered the question of whether Trump can win, we can now turn to the most urgent question. Will his presidency turn into a dictatorship? The odds again, pretty good. And I'm still quoting, it's worth getting inside Trump's head a bit and imagining his mood following an election victory. He will have spent the previous year and more fighting to stay out of jail, plagued by persecutors and helpless to do what he likes to do best, exact revenge. Think of the fury that will have built up inside of him, a fury that from his point of view, he has worked hard to contain. As he put it once, quote, I think I've been toned down. 
If you want to know the truth, I could really tone it up. Indeed, he could and will. We caught a glimpse of his deep thirst for vengeance in his Veterans Day promise to root out the communists, Marxists, fascists, radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country. Lie, steal, and cheat on elections, and will do anything possible, whether legally or illegally, to destroy America and the American dream. That's the end of Trump's quotes. And then the author says, note the quotation of himself with America and the American dream. It's as if they are trying to destroy. It is he they are trying to destroy, he believes. And as president, he will return the favor. Then the author goes on to talk about how Trump's going to get his revenge, how it's going to be easy for him, how they've been planning this, and they have, and I go into that a lot in my other podcast, so I'll, I'll kind of skip it. I still believe in our country and in the checks and balances system. Do I think Trump can get rid of some of that? Yes, I do. Am I hoping we can fight him? Yes, I am. And I'm hoping that we can re-elect Joe Biden. There's a part in here about are we going to stand up if Trump is re-elected and fight for democracy? And the bottom line from Kagan is no, we're not. That we haven't done it. And that we Americans, we're lazy and we like to just, if it doesn't affect us personally, we don't care. I almost agree with him on that. People don't understand how serious this is. Except, of course, us. You because you listen to this podcast and me because I can't stop reading about this stuff. And now we go to the end. This is how the piece ends. Quote, what is certain, however, is that the odds of the United States falling into dictatorship have grown considerably because so many of the obstacles to it have been cleared and only a few are left. If eight years ago it seemed literally inconceivable that a man like Trump could be elected, that obstacle was cleared in 2016. If it then seemed unimaginable that an American president would try to remain in office after losing an election, that obstacle was cleared in 2020. And if no one could believe that Trump having tried and failed to invalidate the election and stop the counting of electoral college votes, would nevertheless re-emerge as the unchallenged leader of the Republican Party and its nominee again in 2024, well, we are about to see that obstacle cleared as well. In just a few years, we have gone from being relatively secure in our democracy to being a few short steps and a matter of months away from the possibility of a dictatorship. Are we going to do anything about it? The author asks. Then he says, to shift metaphors, if we thought there was a 50% chance of an asteroid crashing into North America a year from now, would we be content to just hope that it wouldn't? Or 
would we be taking every conceivable measure to try to stop it, including many things that might not work, but that given the magnitude of the crisis must be tried anyway. And he goes on, yes, I know that most people don't think an asteroid is heading toward us, and that's part of the problem. But just as big a problem has been those who see the risk, but for a variety of reasons, have not thought it necessary to make any sacrifices to prevent it. At each point along the way, our political leaders and we, as voters, have let opportunities to stop Trump pass on the assumption that he would eventually meet some obstacle he could not overcome. Republicans could have stopped Trump from winning the nomination in 2016. The voters could have elected Hillary Clinton, but they didn't. Republican senators could have voted to convict Trump in either of his impeachment trials, which might have made his run for president much more difficult, but they didn't. Throughout these years, an understandable if fatal psychology has been at work. At each stage, stopping Trump would have required extraordinary action by certain people, whether politicians or voters or donors, actions that did not align with their immediate interests or even merely their preferences. It would have been extraordinary for all the Republicans running against Trump in 2016 to decide to give up their hopes for the presidency and unite around one of them. Instead, they behaved normally, spending their time and money attacking each other, assuming that Trump was not their most serious challenge or that someone else would bring him down and thereby opened a clear path for Trump's nomination. And they have, with just a few exceptions, done the same thing this election cycle. It would have been extraordinary had Mitch McConnell and many other Republican senators voted to convict a president of their own party. Instead, they assumed that after January 6, 2021, Trump was finished and it was therefore safe not to convict him and thus avoid becoming pariahs among the vast throng of Trump supporters. In each instance, people believed they could go on pursuing their personal interests and ambitions as usual in the confidence that somewhere down the line, someone or something else, simply fate would stop him. Why should they be the ones to sacrifice their careers, given the choice between a high-risk gamble and hoping for the best? People generally hope for the best. Given the choice between doing the dirty work yourself and letting others do it, people generally prefer the latter. A paralyzing psychology of appeasement has been at work. At each stage, the price of stopping Trump has risen higher and higher. In 2016, the price was foregoing a shot at the White House. Once Trump was elected, the price of opposition or even the absence of loyalty became the end of one's political career. By 2020, the price has risen again. As Mitt Romney recounts in the recent biography, Republican members of Congress contemplating voting for Trump's impeachment and conviction feared for their physical safety and that of their families. 
There is no reason that fear should be any less today. But wait until Trump returns to power and the price of opposing him becomes persecution, the loss of property, and possibly the loss of freedom. Will those who balked at resisting Trump when the risk was merely political oblivion suddenly discover their courage when the cost might be the ruin of oneself and one's family? We are closer to that point today than we have ever been. Yet we continue to drift toward dictatorship, still hoping for some intervention that will allow us to escape the consequences of our collective cowardness, our complacency, willful ignorance, and above all, our lack of any deep commitment to liberal democracy. As the man said, we are going out, not with a bang, but a whimper. End quote. I'm Gloria Moraga. This is the Political Woman Podcast. Please subscribe. As I mentioned at the beginning, I will post a link to this op-ed, to this opinion piece on my website, GloriaMoraga.com. Please take care. Please let's gear up for next year. We've got to get out the vote. We've got to be unified for democracy, for the Democratic Party, for President Biden. It's critical, my friends. This is no joke. This is no political party just whining as usual about how people don't vote and we all need to vote. No, this is serious. This is it, okay? We need to put up or shut up. (sighs) I'm Gloria Moraga, political woman. Take care. Please be safe.